Welcome to this Jeremy Bamber and White House Farm podcast season two. Last week we interviewed actor and presenter Steve Rafe, who in this episode reads a narrative written by Jeremy Bamber about his perspective on the evidence in the case. I wanted to write about all things that have happened to me over the years that are unique to me and really extraordinary, verging on the truly incredible. What is amazing is that nothing I write about here is or was unknown about by the police, the Home Office or the Crown Prosecution Service. But they refuse to admit that they know this information. This is why one of my favourite sayings is, the only thing that is necessary for the triumph of evil is for good people to know and for them to then do nothing. But in my case, so many people have known what happened to me over the years, but they have simply chosen to stay silent or have turned a blind eye to these matters. I don't doubt for a moment that during the last 36 years, some people who knew have attempted to speak out and their statements have been and still remain undisclosed or haven't spoken to about their desire to speak out, have gone on to withdraw their witness statements or agree to stay silent. We know from first-hand accounts from witnesses who gave a statement to the police that by the time their statement was typed up and ready to be signed, it had been edited. This was to leave out evidence helpful to the defence, or it was changed to make an otherwise favourable witness statement for the defence, one that became favourable to the prosecution case. For instance, even when Colin Caffell pointed out to DCI Michael Ainsley that his statement had been typed up wrongly and that this changed the whole meaning of his evidence, he was prevented from having the typed version corrected. One of the other techniques used by Essex police to manipulate the witness evidence was to advise the witness whilst taking their statement not to include certain aspects of evidence. It happened to me whilst Essex police took my statement. I told Essex police certain things which explained why certain witnesses were keen to give misleading evidence against me, only to be told that they were not interested in any of the criminal offences that certain witnesses had supposedly committed and accordingly made no record of me bringing this information to their attention. Anne Eaton made a record of being told by Essex police officers on a number of occasions that she could not include certain information in her witness statements. The reason for explaining all of this information is that it puts into context why it has taken more than 36 years for so much of this information to become known about. Non-disclosure of evidence in my case is not simply about non-disclosure of the material once it has been recorded. It is often the manipulation of the evidence prior to it being recorded onto a witness statement. A prime example of all of the above comes prior to me even being a suspect in the case. On the 6th of September 1985, a month after the tragedy, the Chief Constable, the Deputy Chief Constable, Peter Simpson, and DCI Michael Ainsley tasked DCI Keneally to write a report to review the evidence in that case. DCI Keneally had to have done exactly that. Speaking to DS Stanley Brian Jones, DI Robert Miller, DI Ron Cook, and many other police officers and forensic scientists, DCI Keneally also reviewed the case photographs. The witness statements from everyone already interviewed, such as the Bowflowers and the Eatons, Sheila Psychiatrist, her friend, Freddie, and Colin Caffell, to name a few. We know that DCI Keneally had to do a very thorough job of reviewing and assessing the evidence gathered during the previous four weeks, because Robert Bowflower had made an official complaint against Essex Police to the Chief Constable. In it, he accused Essex Police of negligence, 
and stated that he was certain I was responsible for murdering all five members of the family. He also stated I was stealing all of the family treasures that rightfully belonged to him and his family, even though I was stealing nothing, just taking some of mum and dad's things to Sotheby's with the full knowledge and permission of the executor of mum and dad's estates. Robert Bowflower was obviously obsessed with money. Because prior to making his formal complaint to the Chief Constable of Essex Police, he visited his own solicitor, Mr Rant, on the 24th of August to find out how he could stop me from inheriting anything from my grandmother, Mabel Speakman's will. It seems incredible that the solicitor, Mr Rant, did not immediately inform the police that Robert was planning to defraud Mabel Speakman by changing his 94-year-old lady's will so that his wife, Pamela, would inherit everything after Mabel's death. We do not know why Mr Rant stayed silent about this impending fraud, but it appears that, if Essex police knew that Robert was planning to defraud this venerable 94-year-old lady of all her money and assets, Essex police chose to do nothing to prevent this from happening. Mabel Speakman's will was changed on the 2nd of September, 1985, leaving everything except a few small gifts to Robert Bowflower's wife, Pamela. It's unthinkable for my grant to completely disinherit me a few weeks after I had lost my family in this awful tragedy. And for he to do this even before I was a suspect and a month before I was charged with murder. No one who knew Granny Speakman would believe that she would have been so mean and cruel to me by disowning me and disinheriting me. Gran would never have acted in this way, not in a million years. The changing of Gran's will was nothing to do with what she wanted. It was a despicable fraud carried out by Robert to steal money from a 94-year-old lady. DCI Keneally had to carry out this review very carefully, because there is no doubt that the Chief Constable was very worried that this investigation into the deaths of five people had been carried out really badly. There is no doubt included the Chief Constable knowing that Essex Police were responsible for Sheila's second gunshot injury. Also, that he knew that more than 40 individuals had entered the farmhouse before a single photograph had been taken. Furthermore, the Chief Constable must have known that the deceased and much of the scene had been restaged before any scenes of crime work had been carried out or any photographs had been taken. The Chief Constable would also have known that photographs taken at the scene that morning by DC Bird, who was the crime scene photographer, depicted police officers acting wholly inappropriately. Some taken the days after the tragedy show police officers behaving obscenely at the scene. Accordingly, the Chief Constable must have wanted DCI Keneally to be certain of his conclusions to ensure Robert didn't take his complaints to the Police Complaints Authority for further investigation. On the 6th of September, 1985, DCI Keneally presented his report to the Chief Constable. The Deputy Chief Constable, Peter Simpson, and DCI Michael Ainsley, the conclusion of DCI Keneally's report stated, the evidence indicates that Sheila was responsible. This conclusion was relayed to Robert by DCI Keneally. Robert must have gone into a real panic, knowing that it would only be a matter of time before I discovered that he had conned my grandmother into changing her will. We know that when Graham was told that Mum, Dad, Sheila and the boys had all died in this awful tragedy, no one told her that I was still alive. This might explain why Graham failed to mention me in her new will. However, the fraud issue is not explained away so easily as Robert sought advice about having Mabel Speakman's will changed on the 24th of August 1985. Gran was only informed about the tragedy on the 2nd of September. And therefore it cannot have been Gran's idea that she needed to change her will even if after the 2nd of September 
Graham believed that I'd also died. This would explain why Robert flatly refused to allow me access into Vaulty Manor farmhouse so that I could visit my Gran. He kept on telling me that she was far too ill to see anyone, including me. In the witness statements that Robert wrote after my arrest, he made out that I said I didn't want to see my grandmother. We know that Robert also prevented Colin Caffell from visiting my Gran, Mabel Speakman. No doubt worrying that as Colin was not part of his contract to defraud Gran of her money, that Colin might start talking about me, wondering how I was when I came to visit her. Then she would have known that I was alive and realised that she had been tricked into changing her will in order to disinherit me. Gran would have been mortified that I think her so mean as to disown me and disinherit me, only weeks after I'd lost five members of my family. From this point on, it becomes clear why Essex Police and my relatives went to such extraordinary lengths to invent or manipulate the case evidence in an attempt to implicate me in the murders of my family. After Malcolm Waters reported the information Julie had told to the police on the 7th of September 1985, Julie Mugford was taken into police custody and interviewed without a solicitor being present. Julie began to be interviewed by DS Stan Jones from around 8pm until after 10pm and then her interviews were continued by DSI Ainsley, DCI Taft Jones and others. It is not known if Julie was interviewed under caution, but we do know that she did not have a solicitor present to advise her of her rights. Julie's interviews continued long into the night, finishing after 2am on the 8th of September. This may or may not surprise people, but according to Essex Police, no record of any kind was made during the six hours of her interviews. No contemporaneous notes were taken, no questions and answers in the form of written statements, no audio recordings, and not even shorthand notes had been written up in police officers' notebooks detailing what Julie had said to them during these hours of interview. Incredibly, neither Julie nor any police officer present has ever said verbally or in statement form exactly what Julie spoke about in these six hours, except that she told them that I had paid Matthew MacDonald £2,000 to murder my family. Julie's hitman story. But can this really be believed, that a witness or an accomplice came into Witham Police Station, confessed that she had known her boyfriend was planning to pay a hitman to kill his family, and that she had known about this for a year, and that no record of any sort was made of what she said during more than six hours of interviews? What would have happened if the CPS declined to charge Julie Mugford with five counts of murder? Would her confession have been written up and backdated? Or did they make very extensive witness testimony in the form of questions and answer statements during the six plus hours of interviews, and these were kept hidden from the defence and not disclosed? Was this done in a secret deal with Julie Mugford to be a prosecution witness against me and Matthew MacDonald? It is now known from internal City of London police papers that were disclosed to me in 2011 that Julie was given a deal in exchange for being a prosecution witness in this case. The exact nature of this deal has not been disclosed. It is known that Essex Police and the CPS did turn a blind eye to the £25,000 contract between the News of the World and Julie for her exclusive story, which would be bought only if I was found guilty. The CPS and Essex Police knew that making such a contract with a national newspaper prior to the jury's verdict was against the law. In 2002, the CPS, Essex Police and Julie Mugford avoided being criticised and censured by the appeal court judges by stating that although the contract was entered into verbally, seven or eight months prior to the trial, the actual contract wasn't signed until the jury's verdict had been given. This was nothing more than a technical sleight of hand, because DS Stan Jones from Essex Police was waiting in the hotel room with Julie and journalists from the News of the World as the verdict from the jury was announced. 
Somehow, the appeal court judges in 2002 ruled that this action by Julie and the news of the world wasn't against the law. Although the jury should probably have been informed that Julie had entered into a contract for £25,000 if the jury found me guilty of murder. But the jury had no idea that Julie was going to sell her story to the media because she had told trial judge that she had no intention of selling her story to the media, which of course we now know to be untrue. In another prejudicial twist to the issue, in 2002, the appeal court judges further undermined the defence complaint regarding Julie selling her story to the news of the world. When the judges stated that the defendant, me, was going to sell my story to the news of the world, had the jury returned a not guilty verdict, so it was therefore difficult to see what the defence were complaining about. Except that my evidence was not influenced by the necessity for the jury to find me guilty for the contract to go ahead, so there was no motive to lie in order to earn £25,000 as there was in Julie's case. Returning to the 8th of September 1985, at approximately 7am, DCI Taft Jones, DS Stan Jones and numerous other police officers from Essex Police arrived at Sheila's flat in Moorshead Road, Maida Vale. Having knocked on the door and being let in, they arrested me and Brett Collins on suspicion of murder. Neither Brett nor I were handcuffed, with both of us being driven to Chelmsford Police Station for questioning, travelling there in separate cars. On arrival, Brett was placed in the male cells, and oddly I was put into the female cells. Perhaps this was done so that Brett and I could not talk to each other. No doubt this would have been the reason given by Essex Police, if they were asked why I was placed in one of the female cells. As I was walking to my cell, I walked past a sign on the cell door, almost opposite from the cell I was going to be placed in. The sign said in large black capital letters, Julie Mugford. Was I placed on this cell in the female wing in the hope that I would shout out to Julie and incriminate myself in some way? Or was I shown that Julie Mugford was in police custody so that I could see my suspected accomplice had also been arrested for murder? I had no idea if Julie was actually in the cell. It may have just been a ruse by Essex Police to pretend that she was inside a female cell. Essex Police have always pretended that Julie approached them as a witness and that she spent 7th to the 10th of September 1985 living in the police college facilities with her friend Elizabeth Rimmington. This was untrue. At least in part, because on the 8th of September, as I emerged from interview, Julie emerged from her cell escorted by DS Stan Jones. I watched Julie enter the lift and then disappear from sight. It is not known if Julie was placed back in the cell on the 8th of September, but by the 9th of September the sign on the cell door had been removed, and the following day I was taken to the male part of the custody suite. Brett Collins had been released without charge at this time. On arrival at Chelmsford Police Station, Police made me feel that being there was an informal thing. The interviews were not official and were just a general chat to clear up some of the concerns raised by the Bowflowers, Eatons and Essex police themselves. My interviews were not written down as witness statements. They were not recorded onto audio or videotape, but simply Essex police told me that they would write up what they had chatted about after the discussion had ended. I was not offered a solicitor. I did not ask for one to be present. If I'd asked for a solicitor to advise me during these informal interviews on the 8th and 9th of September, I would have been refused. My custody records show that DCI Taft Jones had authorised that I would be refused permission to be represented by a solicitor. What I didn't know was that Essex police were deliberately misleading me into chatting to them so that they would discover what my defence case would be. So they should they decide to charge me with paying a hitman to murder my family. 
Once they had discovered my defence case, then Essex police could manipulate and manufacture evidence in order to build a false case against me. Not only that, but Essex police officers informed the Bow Flowers and Eatons, as well as Julie Mugford, about what I was saying to them during the first two days in police custody, so that they could write witness statements to counter everything that I was saying to the police. Once Essex police had tricked me into saying what my defence case would be and compromise of, they then allowed me to see a solicitor. This was on my third day in custody, and the interviews then became formalised into written questions and answers. I was given the duty solicitor under legal aid, as I did not know of a private solicitor who could have advised me. By the time I had the assistance of a solicitor to give me advice, it was too late to give no comment answers. I'd already talked to the police for two days, and so the solicitor's advice was to keep me talking to them and helping with their inquiries. Of course, in hindsight, I said nothing from the police from the moment they picked me up from Sheila's flat, but I'd never been in trouble with the police, nor did I know anyone who had been in trouble with the police. So I had no idea that I should have said anything to them as they needed my cooperation in order to them frame me for murder. If you want to lend your support to Jeremy Bamber, you can write to him in the UK using the number A5352AC HM Wakefield 5 Love Lane Wakefield WF29 AG or see our website for details at www. Jeremy-Bamba.co.uk